Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, and I'm joined today by Phil Oakley. How are you doing, Phil? Very good, thank you. Excellent. Back from holidays. I am, yes. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Okay. And uh, James Norrington. How are you doing, James? Um, good, thank you. Uh, they haven't been on holiday yet, though. Well, we have a holiday. I think you need one. And you've written the cover feature this week, which we're going to discuss. Yes. Youth v. Experience. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah contentious. Uh, it is. Stereotype it is. Uh, yeah, bashing it, stuff. It started off as trying to dispel some stereotypes, but really some do exist, and it's really uh, it's really looking at where we're all the same and where we make mistakes. Indeed. Okay, so there's a lot in the magazine this week, uh, but we're going to concentrate on a couple of specific things. So, Phil, you were away last week in uh, Colorado, as I understand it. Oh, I was, yeah. Um, so we didn't get to talk about your column last week, which, which uh, was about Aston Martin. There's a, a preview of the, the IPO, which is kind of the process has begun today. So we'll talk a little bit about that. We're also going to talk about Ashtid, which we alluded to in the podcast last week after my trip to New York. And I think, you know, we've got some uh, kind of it kind of ties in nicely with our, does, our recent does. US experiences. Um, let's start with uh, let's start with Aston Martin. So Aston Martin, they've set a range today, which is roughly between four and five billion for their IPO. which seems like a large range. Very sensible from the selling point of view, I think. Yeah, um, you're not convinced by this IPO, and we, as I said, we mentioned this uh, last week on the podcast. We weren't able to talk to you about it, but tell us why you you've got some concerns about this particular flotation. Oh well, yeah, I have lots of concerns. It's the wrong it's the wrong time to 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 actually put this put this company into the hands of the stock market. When you say the wrong time, wrong time for pro- for the actual people who might for be investing invest- it, rather than the wrong time for the people who are trying to get their money out of it. <laughs> absolutely the right time to uh, to be a seller, which is, you know, mind your eye if you're a buyer. Um, uh, it's not a bad business. You know, you look at, you know, it's they they came sort of three years ago with a plan to try and sort themselves out. They were losing money. They've sorted themselves out. And they're still sorting themselves out, and they're back to sort of, you know, they're making a reasonable level of profits at the moment. They're not making the same kind of money that Ferrari, which a lot of people compare, compare them that Ferrari is making. But if you if you come back to the the, the price that they seem to want to float this business for, it's um, it's going at a big premium to Ferrari. If you look at it on the basis of you know the value of the business against the current level of operating profit that they're making. You know, this is a company that's got a lot to prove, and I think the strategy is quite risky. You know, you're looking at taking production level of just over 6,000 cars a year, and, you know, you, you have an aspiration to get to 14,000, and therefore you have the basis of a of trying to sell a growth story to investors, which analysts can plug into their spreadsheets and come up with a very big price for it. Mm, I mean, there's a lot of analysts who have looked at this, and uh, not necessarily from uh, from what you would describe as an independent point of view. My understanding is a lot of there's a lot of banks involved in this, yes, push, pushing this, and therefore you won't find many many naysayers. But I think you know you actually look at you know take a step back and actually look at what this business is and look at the characteristics of the business. And this is a business that, you know, has a lot of ups and downs. You know, it goes through good times, bad times, depending on, you know, how wealthy and how confident the rich people are feeling. Mm. And, you know, it's a company that's that's gone bankrupt on a number of occasions. I think in the last financial crisis, uh, the company was, you know, on the brink. And 
this is something that has to be taken into account when you when you put a price tag on this company. It's there's a lot of what is termed operational leverage in this business. There's a lot of fixed overheads. All these factories that they, the factories they've got, they're building another factory that puts in a lot of overhead. So yes, it gives you the potential to get to the fourteen to make fourteen thousand cars, but it also loads on a lot of fixed cost onto the business. And what that means is that if you get you know, subtle changes in, in, in turnover and revenue has a big impact on the profits. And then you throw into the fact that actually Aston Martin's carrying quite a lot of debt at the moment. And, and none of that debt is going to be paid down with the proceeds of the no, IPO, no, I understand. No, no, no. And this, this, is, this is the concern, uh, one of the concerns that I have. I think that if you look at a measure of, you know, a common measure of, uh, of indebtedness, uh, which is like net debt to EBITDA, on the last sort of last twelve months figures, this is something. If you include things like preference shares, which te- which have been ignored, but there's about over two hundred million of preference shares. Preference shares, as far as a shareholder concerned, are debt. If you take that into account, take into account there's a pension fund deficit as well, then this is car- carrying you know nearly four times net debt EBITDA. And so you've got a combination of a cyclical business with high fixed overheads and high financial leverage, and you you know you're facing up to quite a lot of um, of risk if you're if you're last in the queue to get paid as a shareholder. Are you're facing up to a lot of risk here? And I think the other thing that needs to take into take into account is is the actual strategy. One of the things that premium car manufacturers have to be really careful is, is they don't make too many of them and trash their brand. Aston Martin know this, and so they're sort of trying to cap their core premium brands at about seven thousand a year, and then to get to fourteen thousand, you're going into things like um, SUVs, which is something that they've never done before. Well, this is this is the, the, a strategy that people like Porsche have have tried with the uh, the Cayman, and you know you look at someone like uh, Jaguar, for yeah. example, which is which is essentially becoming a bit mass market. Yeah. Yeah, it shouldn't be discounted that 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 reputational impact, the, the kind of attractiveness impact of of it's essentially going beyond being a luxury car maker. Yeah, you know they're, they're doing something they haven't done before. They're, they're what they're trying to what they're asking investors to believe at this price range is that they will ultimately be very successful in selling high priced SUVs in, into that market, and I think that's. That's yet to be proven, and that could be quite hard. A bit of a leap of faith, then, really, here? I think it comes back, yeah, it comes back to the price. You know, any, and when you're looking at any share and you, you buy a share with a high price tag, lots of good news is priced in. And I, I just think that the price, the, there's, a, there's, a, there's a mismatch between the price and the risk for, on, on, this, on this business. Tell me, tell me why Ferrari's different. Uh, I mean, they're both nice cars. Aston, this, I mean, what have we got here? An Aston Martin DBS Superleggera. That's a beautiful looking yeah, car. Yeah, they, I mean, they are lovely cars. You know, there's no, there's no disputing that these are lovely cars and a lot of petrol heads like them. And you know, this is not a criticism of, of the product. Um, what do Ferrari do that's different? Then why? why uh, Ferrari why? is as Ferrari, from what I can see, has been a little bit more successful, shall we say, in actually promoting the Ferrari brand so sort of being a more general brand uh, which is something that um, Aston Martin will probably want to do as well but probably hasn't got there yet is it I mean are you talking sort of product licensing that type, kind of type thing, stuff yeah. yeah 
So yeah. I, know, I know there's a Ferrari theme park, for example, out in, yeah. in, Bran- branching in the out, Middle East. Branching out, leveraging the brand into things other than just bits of metal. Mm. Um, and if you know, you look at the you look at the the business has done very well since it's floated on the New York Stock Exchange. It's very profitable. You know, it's making you know in excess of twenty percent profit margins. It's got a lot lower debt than Aston Martin. You know, if I was looking to buy buy into a premium car sector, I'd, and I'm given the choice between these two, I probably might still want to stick my money in Ferrari than than Aston Martin, given the risk reward trade off. Mm, interesting. I tell you what, this is a really interesting point at which we might turn to the cover feature. Because Aston Martin is it is an aspirational brand. Lots of people in the UK know it. Lots of uh, wealthier uh, investors might even own one or aspire to own one, or you know, own it. Is is you know the fact that you have a brand like Aston Martin, something that can sway people's decision making to, to invest in something that they perhaps shouldn't because of their their relationship with it. Aspirate. It, it's essentially a youthful experience question. People do um, that. They attach a, a value to, to a brand, something they own. There's definitely there is a form of cognitive bias. I mean, you talk about the way that younger investors actually favour tech stocks because they know them really well, whereas our older investors are less inclined to buy them because they're less familiar with technology. Yeah, they, they, they're immersed in it. Young people, uh, they know the brands. They they instantly have an idea of what communications uh, are going to resonate, are going to get picked up, going to be used. But then obviously uh, that doesn't necessarily make for, for good investments all the time if you just have to look at, at Twitter or Snap and uh, it's not the, you know, there's a big difference between that and something like uh, uh, Google, uh, which, which does have uh, very clear revenue streams. Indeed. So, James, I mean, let's, let's go back a little bit. Tell us what you started writing this feature with uh, trying to, to prove something and it didn't quite work out in the way that you wanted. Tell, tell us what you were trying to do and what we ended up with. Well, I was looking at stereotypes that people have about um, the millennial generation um, and I was thinking, um, well, well, are those entirely fair? Because I, 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 we receive IC Portfolio Clinic submissions um, and you see a lot of young people doing some very sensible things, primarily starting investing young and taking advantage of the, of the time frame that gives them um, and the powers of compounding. Which is against the stereotype. Which is against the stereotype. You know, the idea that, that people are just frittering away all their money on avocados and um, <laughs> you know, the, uh, martinis and things. It's just, it's, it's, that, that, that's... Uh, a bit unfair. Um, it's the same way it would be unfair to say that all baby boomers were, were pot-smoking hippies. It's just not true. So, mm, um, mm. so, so you were trying to prove that, that actually the, the millennial stereotype is, is a little bit wider the mark. And that actually there were potentially things that older investors could, could actually learn well, from the way these guys are doing things. It's basically there's some, there's some, some general rules. Um, for investing, which I think are true, whatever um, age you are, some general mistakes, um, and, and the rules are obviously you know sort of just to understand your risk and reward profile, um, stay invested, time in the market, not timing the market, not to get too concentrated. I mean, concentration's fine, backing a trend's fine, but be sure you understand the risk and that you've got the capacity to to bear that risk. If you if you know, if, if you want to back a trend, then we had a one young reader who who really believed in electric vehicles, for example, um, and it's fine to back a trend, but he was putting all of his investment portfolio in that when he would, you know, with the size of money he had, he's better off investing in, a, in probably in a tracker and, and making sure it's a total returns. So presumably a lot of that money was going into Tesla. Well, yeah, I can't, <laughs> I can't remember that. Yes, it would have been. But the, the, which, which in, with the benefit of hindsight, mm-hmm. and in fact, we, without the benefit of hindsight, I'm sure we said it at the time, was perhaps not the best investment strategy. No, no. 
Chris Stiller actually did uh, on this particular one, he did actually say that well, the danger you have is of being disrupted if you're backing a trend. And, and to be honest, the younger people, the thing is, is if you, you've taken advantage of, of the time you have in the market by investing young, um, you don't actually need to take as high a risk strategy you know, to, get a, to get a very good return over time. You just uh, invest broadly, reinvesting um, your dividends and allow the magic of compounding to do its business. So, so what you actually found was that, and you spoke to a lot of uh, cognitive bias experts when you were putting this together yes yeah, so but what you actually found was that the the, as the mistakes are fairly generic um but there are certain experiential uh factors which do actually determine how there, there is a difference between well, one, generational of, one of the behavior. big things um so it's, it's prospect theory where people um you know they they base their decisions on on what their forward estimates of things are going to be rather than an actual sort of utility function which is what in classical economics um, which assumes perfect knowledge and rational outcomes but we're, we're afflicted by bounded rationality we have emotions one of the things that we do um is we frame things by our own experiences and that's that's um, used as the basis for a lot of our decisions now framing is something so so what i want to get to with the feature is is um you know the, there's nothing particularly wrong with millennials or or older people per se it's um you know the, but but they're all guilty of framing the difference is, is they frame in a slightly different way because of their experiences um but there are some instances where they're framing from the same experience um and one example of that would be uh, the um the, the stock market returns of the last 10 years um is is people are are anchoring to that to the rate of return this is the recency bias. The recent, it? Well, it's a recency bias. Um, it's, in this instance, it's pe- people tend to anchor to a reference point and then they base all their, uh, their estimates um, from that anchor point. So our optimism bias means it's evolutionarily necessary. It means that, that you know, when human beings come into obstacles or it's foraging for food or, or, or whatever, then, uh, then actually it's, it's good that we, we, we keep on going, we don't give up. And it, it's probably something that's, and it's something that's helped investors as well. I mean, long before this optimism bias was discovered by neuroscientists, or confirmed by neuroscientists, it was um, it, it was it was the title of the the famous book by Dimson, Marsh, and Staunton, Triumph, um, of, the Triumph of the Optimists, about stock market returns and and about you know that over time equity investors have done very well over the the long century, the long twentieth century. Yeah, no, no, it's true. I mean, I think that's true. I'm a pessimist. But then, you know, my, my anchoring, my framing is I started work in the city during the dot-com crash and I started work in the financial media during the layman's crash. So, uh, yeah, I'm anchored to really quite bad news. Which actually we, we talk about the tech stocks in the, in the feature is, is that actually that's one of the, the things is that the, um, the, the framing of tech has been very negative. Warren Buffett famously, um, you know, the world's greatest investor, uh, famously says um, that, that not buying uh, into Google since 2015 Alphabet has been it was a mistake after 2009 and he, he Berkshire Hathaway has missed out on a lot of upside there from the early part of the boom of the, the fangs one thing that sort of crosses my mind on this is that you could probably have spoken to a lot of Japanese people to tell you a lot of different tell you a big different story in terms of how, how optimism has uh, affected them because that's been a pretty bad place to invest yeah although it's getting better it's getting better much better we had a we had a speak we had an event on tuesday you and what, to, you've had to have a lot with a long wait yes it has but but actually it looks quite good and we, we had a speaker at the event from fidelity yeah. uh, a japanese fund manager who lives out there and you know they are changing abenomics is actually having an effect and you know they are becoming optimistic they're investing in uh technology technology that will improve their productivity so you know i think japan it, it looks quite interesting in a way that i hadn't really considered before but you're right yeah, you had to wait a long well, time. I don't know. I don't know if I'm right. It's just <laughs> no, you had to wait a long time. It's a, just, just a thought. Uh, you know, I think it's very interesting as well because you know, if you look at this whole thing about 
putting your basing your views or opinions on recent experience you know we we are very easy to forget this but we are actually living in quite unprecedented times as as uh, as investors because we've never had a situation like this where things like interest rates particularly have been screwed down so low it's um that has it has taken a a lot of manipulation not trying to be big downer on this but it's taken a lot of central bank manipulation to inflate asset markets for the last 10 years and you know you throw that into the mix and start seeing how that can play around with your points of view about what might happen in the future and i think you know interesting subject but, but i guess the point you're... one of the point we've made is, exactly is because is, is that is that with framing it's very dangerous that people of all age groups are are basically they're, they're making they've anchored to this this spectacular rate of returns for the last decade when they should actually be making their estimates even though they're they're downgrading them but a lot of people are saying well i, I did i've made 10 percent the last uh, the last few years I, i'm I, i'm only going to make five but actually more sensibly they should be looking at well the long run you might make sort of uh, five or six percent a year from equities, and because we've had this unprecedented uh, um, support from uh, monetary policy, and as that's tightened and, and withdrawn, uh, that actually you should be looking at lower than the normal rate of five percent. Maybe you, you, you've got to look down to maybe something like two or three. Mm. So, uh, in summary, was there anything that older investors could learn from millennials and vice versa? I think for the young can definitely learn from the old. I mean, trends are exciting, but but beware of gimmicks. I mean, there's something as there's a new app for investing in brands you love. Um, but but actually, dabble, was that dabble, 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 yeah, yeah which uh, you know, I, I I haven't looked into it too much. So I don't really want to completely. Uh, have a go at them but it intuitively doesn't strike me as very sensible um, I think you need to be looking at, at, at sort of the, the core measures you know that Phil looks at in his articles you know, to, um, you know revenue recognition cash conversion uh, solid fundamentals of companies as well um, and I think that, that, that the older um, can actually can learn from some of the dynamic young people who, who do things like that. they look at their human capital they look at their wealth holistically they don't make as many mental accounting mistakes because um you know they, they, they tend to look at their wealth um together and, and they generally yeah and they generally probably are more pessimistic than, than younger investors and perhaps need to be a bit more optimistic i know that i know i'm guilty of that well, I think actually, I think some of our um, older readers are, are very optimistic. You know, they they they, they love um, they love their um, the sort of what I would call lottery stocks. Some of them. I see um, what they do, I see what they do love. Scottish Mortgage, uh, the investment trust, which uh, who presented on uh, on Tuesday. A lot of our readers uh, have invested significantly, in, and it has been a fantastic investment for it them. Has. And actually, very good value as well. Yeah, and it's uh, it's. I think what they're charging what. Oh, it's less than a percent, isn't it? Point four five or yeah. something, isn't it? It's ex- well, they don't they don't have a great uh, stock turnover. It deserves its plaudits. You could say, look, they've taken sort of big thematic punts and they've disregarded high valuations, but you know the proof proof of the pudding's in the eating. They've delivered some fantastic returns, and you know, not being afraid to stick to their knitting. You know, that they've, this is what they've said, what they've done, they've done, they've done it. Their, their point that they made repeatedly on on Tuesday was that. You know, there's a lot of noise in the short term which can can steer you away from from the tech story, which you know there was a, a wobble earlier this year. But but actually, these these companies are going to shape the the world changes in the long term, and you need to be you need to be on that that roller coaster. How long's Amazon traded for on a triple digit P ratio? I know. I know it's bad. Still keeps going up. Indeed, indeed. Um, let's talk about something. Thank you, James. Um, let's talk about something far more mundane uh, and old, oldie worldy, which is uh, equipment hire. Mm. Um, now we, we've both been to the US recently. I don't think either of us have been massively impressed with their infrastructure. 
is this a good opportunity for Ashted? It rents uh, construction equipment uh, in the UK and the US, particularly in the US, yeah. um, and looks looks pretty pretty well poised to benefit from from the investment that really needs to happen there. From our experience, yeah. I mean, just to say, it's not just a construction story. I think just under half half the business is construction. But there's no doubt that construction and North American construction, in particular, is where you know where it's at for Ashdead. It's the bulk of its profits coming from this and in terms of the value of the business essentially it's all in all in north america the uk business isn't as attractive there's a lot more competition in this market in in the uk and uh, its levels of profitability reflect that in america it's a different playing field there's there's only really a couple of big players the market's very fragmented and scale does give you an advantage in this marketplace and you know just in terms of the ability to serve big customers geographic reach that kind of thing and i think you said that the us in the us market construction companies themselves are much more likely to own equipment than than hire it in yeah well that is that is something that's changed relatively re- recently since we've come out of the last recession there there has been a big shift amongst construction customers and general just general equipment users to rent these things rather than buy them because it because it gives them flexibility so if they one of the worst things you can have if you are owning lots of assets is that you you don't use them so you still have to carry the costs of actually owning them if you rent them and you have a downturn in business or a job finishes you just give it back this is something that's very appealing and this is one of the key drives of the market. It's not just U.S. construction backlog, infrastructure improvements. There is actually an underpinning structural shift that's been going on in this market and probably got still a way to go, in my opinion, of moving away from owning to renting. And that's good news for Ashstead. Yeah, I guess people are a bit worried. About, I mean, the, the rating of the uh, shares is quite lowly. So I guess there are some concerns about yeah. its con- ability to continue delivering. Absolutely. I mean, this is... This is a business that, you know, if you look at its history, when the economy turns and when the construction markets turn, people give their people give the kit back and it's very difficult to rent it again. And your profits, if, if the last recession is anything to go by, they get hit really badly. You know, we have seen over the last nine months or so, you know, a reasonable derating in, uh, in Ashdead shares, which is quite interesting because... Sort of counterintuitive because you hear a lot of good news supposedly coming out of the US economy. Um, the stock market's very high. Um, Ashdead is delivering very strong levels of profits growth, but the price tag that the market's putting on, on its shares is actually going down, which is saying that you know, if, you, if you just like try and look at this and try and work out what's going on, it's saying, look, slowdown coming here. But the company has... You know, it's delivering, been doing better than analysts expect. Profit forecasts have been consistently nudging up on this one. And um, the company has got a clear strategy of what it wants to get to over the next two or three years. And it looks like, so in terms of what it wants to get to, just briefly, it's looking to get to, you know, about five billion of, of North American turnover. And we're sort of run rate of just under four at the moment, I think. And so it looks like it's going to get there. It's going to get there earlier than people expect and that will if it does then you know the earnings forecasts are going to be pretty strong for the next two or three years unless unless the american economy slams into a brick wall and i just think yes i'm not saying this is a share that should trade on you know a very high multiple 20 times plus but there is 
still a lot of earnings and earnings momentum, good cash flow, good underlying cash flow generation in this business as well. Not a lot of debt, you know, net debt EBITDA on this is, uh, you know, towards the bottom of its range, one and a half times, a lot lower than Aston Martin that we were talking about uh, a few minutes ago. So, you know, in stark contrast to Aston Martin, where a lot of good news and a lot of risk is, is, um, not priced, sorry, is priced into the shares. Sorry, the good news is the risk isn't. With Ashdead, uh, the good news isn't, the risk probably is. Yeah, because you've basically got two cyclical businesses here. Yeah. And one is being treated as a cyclical business. Yeah. In fact, treated very harshly as a cyclical business, and one is not being treated as a cyclical business at all. Correct. That's, yeah, bit of mispri- I, I, bit, bit of mispricing then. I, I, I think, you know, if you look at the characteristics of Ashdead, it's not gonna. It's not gonna keep going up forever. There is gonna be a pullback. None of us know when that will be. I think if you look at the sort of short to medium term outlook of this company, you know, you could see earnings, you know, quite a lot higher than than what they are now over the next two or three years. And it just makes me think that this this stock has probably got a bit more legs in it. Late cycle, but but late cy- to come. Late cycle. I think it could probably still do okay. Interesting. Uh, of course, we are. I, in particular, am completely framing this story in my my recent reference of uh, what I experienced in New York, which coming out of JFK Airport was horrific. I've never seen roads like it. Same in Colorado. Uh, a lot of money being spent has been spent around Denver. Um, as soon as you get, I mean, if you look at the airport, look at the road network, sort of around Denver, compared to when I went four years ago. Uh, some money has been spent there. And That's it, kind of what you want to see, though. I mean, yeah, it, it's what it's, it's needed and what you want to see. Well, you get out to sort of, you know, Colorado Springs and sort of further south down into Colorado, and you think there's a bit of work that needs to be done here. Which is good for Ashton. One would imagine in the longer term. Yeah. Good. All right. Well, thank you very much, uh, Phil. And thank you, James. Um, not a grand cupboard there. But the magazine is packed full uh, of other stuff this week. We're actually having a look at... Uh, Emma Powers had a look at Russia in our second feature to really kind of get to, to grips with what sanctions mean for that market. Um, got a lot of fund options there uh, if you can stomach the risk. It is very cheap uh, as a market. Elsewhere in the comment section, apart from Phil, we have uh, Paul Jackson uh, looking at employee share plans this week. It's quite an interesting little insight there into uh, to, to how companies uh, try and get their, their uh, employees engaged with them as publicly listed companies. Lots and lots of results. Uh, and in fact, it's going to be really busy next week. It never ends. It just never ends. I think a lot of AIM companies are reporting right now. And I think retailers are going to start coming through uh, in, in the, the next uh, few weeks. Sector Focus looking at LPG. Uh, Stock Screen uh, looking at Algies, in fact, having a, a rethink about quality shares, which was something you wrote about. Nice little companion piece there, Phil. Indeed, Lots in the personal finance and fun section, which they will talk about on their podcast. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's as I say, uh, a jam-packed magazine, youth first experience, why generations invest differently and what they can learn from each other. Thank you for listening, and we will be back again next week.